Good morning. It's a great pleasure and honor to be here with you this morning. Me and my wife, along with all the other missionaries here, and we really enjoy the warmth of your hospitality and uh, your faith and uh, your desire to be a blessing for the nations. So uh, this morning we are going to uh, focus on Paul's visit to Athens. What we are doing started uh, on Friday is to visit with Paul several cities in the context of his second missionary journey. So we started in Troas, which is actually the very beginning of his travels uh, to Greece, second missionary journey. Today, this morning, we'll see Athens. This is wrong, it's Acts 17. Uh, but uh, we'll uh, figure that out. And then tonight, Lord willing, we will go with Paul in Corinth, uh, uh, visiting Acts uh, 18. So before we uh, embark studying the gospel, let me, the, 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 the sermon here, let me show you a, f a few photographs. So this is the view outside of my office window. Uh, <laughs> Uh, many times I joke and I say if there was ever a competition about the best view out of the pastor's office window, I'm sure that I would win. And this is only one side of my window. The other side, I see the, the Hadrian's Art, the Table of Zeus, the Ancient Stadium, and all of that. Now, uh, uh, this is uh, the Parthenon, okay, the Acropolis and the Parthenon. And on the back is where the Mars Hill uh, I mean, of course, it's debated whether it's there or there is another place where it's kind of a court, but there is uh, this. This is a photograph. This is like a rocky mountain, which is called the Areopagos or Mars uh, Hill. In many ways, I feel that uh, because of the proximity, I need to have the copyright of this uh, passage. But anyway, I allow others as well to preach from it. But um, when we come to Acts 17, we see, and Paul's visit to Athens, we see uh, in the narration of Luke, there is a narrative framework uh, before and after the speech, and at the center we have Paul's speech. So we're not going to focus uh, today on so much on the speech, but uh, the narrative framework, uh, which actually describes what I would call the missional attitude, which leads Paul to the Areopagus and leads Paul to give that famous speech on that uh, place. Now, I use the word missional, and I think it is important to explain what I mean by this word. And let me tell you a little bit, a little story. Many years ago, when we first came here to the United States to study in Boston, we were at Gordon Canwell at that time, so the first Christmas we decided to make a road trip and go and visit in Chattanooga, Tennessee, from Boston to Chattanooga to drive with an old, you know, small car, and then we realized it was not a good idea during the winter to do such a trip, but anyhow, we didn't know then and were young and restless. So we uh, went to Chattanooga, and it was the time that there was no GPS, and so we had to rely on a map. Uh, and also on written directions that somebody would give us out how to find the house. So we drove all the way to Chattanooga. Eventually, we reached Chattanooga, and the directions said that when you see a Baptist church at the corner, you take a right. <laughs> and um, I had to stop and use the public phone and call and say, you know what, you need to give me another cue by the seat because it seems that there is a Baptist church in every corner. <laughs> in Chattanooga. Uh, now, that 
is a good definition of what we mean when we say Christendom. Okay? So this is a place which is a, a Christian place. So because of that, many times when people thought of missions, it always meant something that happens someplace else. Because here we have, unless your mission is to convert Baptists becoming Presbyterians, I mean, we have no mission here because, you know, everybody seems to be Christian and the place is packed and full of, with churches and all of that. Now, the good, the good thing is this is changing because of secularization. And I'm saying it's a good thing, it's not a good thing, but it, it can become a good thing for the church so that the church will recapture a very essential component of what it means to be a church. And the very essence of the church, the very essence of Christian life is mission. So it's a good thing that the church starts talking more and more now here in the West and particularly United States about how to become missional. So that will be our discussion this morning. What does it mean to be missional? What is the missional attitude? And we will see four things that I believe will help us capture this uh, orientation, a missional orientation. So the first thing is that to have a missional attitude means to live uh, our ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. We'll explain what we mean by that. Ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. The important thing to keep in mind here when we come to this passage is that Paul, as much as I don't like that, didn't intend to go to Athens. Athens was not a strategic city. Athens relied on past glories, but it was not an important city at the time that Paul was there. Corinth was his end point. He really wanted to go to Corinth. He just happened to be in Athens. And uh, we understand that if we see what happened before he was in Berea and there was a persecution and he had to flee, you know, uh, during the night and he left his co-workers back and he ended up in Athens and he had to wait for them to come. And then right after Athens, we see that he goes straight to Corinth because that was his plan. But now he happened to be in Athens. And um, it is interesting that in the narrative we have a string of participles which underline this idea that Paul here is not on a mission. He just happens to be there. Okay? So for example, we read uh, at the beginning of the narrative, now while Paul was waiting. Okay? So Paul didn't intend, didn't plan to go to Athens. He just happened to be there. And as he was waiting for his co-workers to come, things happened. And then there is another part participle, which uh, in verse 16, again, as he saw, actually a better translation is upon seeing, so that we can keep that form, the participle. Then again, we go to verse uh, 17, the next verse. He started discussing with those who happened to be there. I don't know if you feel that, that here there is no intention. Paul happens to be there, is waiting, seeing things, talking with people who, whoever happens to be there. And all of that is summarized by Paul in verse 23 when he starts talking to the Athenians. He says, as I was passing along. Um, this is a better translation of that verb. Again, it's a participle. So uh, what we need to keep in mind here is that Paul is in Athens not as a missionary sent on a mission. 
He's an ordinary visitor uh, who happens to be there because he's waiting his friends to come. So he has some time to kill, and he does the most natural thing that you do when you go to one place, especially in Athens. You walk around, you know, and you meet with people, and you start talking with people. Who? Whoever happens to be there. So I hope you feel and you sense this, the air of ordinariness. And I think that is a good definition of what missional means. Here it is. Ordinary people doing ordinary things, but with gospel intentionality. So Paul uh, never forgets that he's, no matter what, is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. So doing the ordinary things as an ordinary person, but with gospel intentionality. And I think that is a very important thing that we need to capture as it is, because many times we think that missional means that we need to organize that and we can be on a mission and this is something for the missionaries to do, whereas missional is something that covers all of, all of our life, all of our life. There is no place, there is no time that is insignificant in God's eyes. And God many times is giving us opportunities in those places that we never expect and we could have never planned. For example, uh, one of the most exciting things that happens in Athens is pretty much what Neil said. We have an influx of immigrants and uh, national churches in our cities in Europe, the same thing in, in Athens. Uh, and one of the most exciting things that happens in Athens, and the purposes can tell you about the Iranians and coming to faith, we have an Iranian congregation, we have an Iranian church that has been planted many years ago in Athens. And the first couple of years of the existence of this church, I was baptizing, I was involved, very much involved, and I was baptizing, I must have baptized more than 200 Iranians. And to be honest with you, being a good Presbyterian at seminary, I didn't, I skipped that class that they were teaching us how to baptize adults. Because I said, okay, we only baptize infants. So I didn't know how to do it. But on YouTube, you can find everything these days. So <laughs> I, I was able to see so that, you know, uh, it's not a dangerous uh, enterprise. Uh, and, but here is the story, though, how this whole thing started. This Iranian pastor, Manucer, so this guy visits from Iran, uh, Turkey, to work, and somebody, see the ordinariness, somebody gives him a Bible. Who is this guy? We don't know. In eternity, we'll find out. He gives him a Bible without saying much. So he takes the Bible. He does not really understand what this whole thing is. He puts it in his suitcase. He forgets all about it. It's time for him to go back in Iran. They check his stuff at the borders. They find the Bible. They say, what is this? They, he says, you know, somebody gave me this book. I don't know what exactly that is. And they start interrogating him. They go to, they take him to jail. And of course, he's in jail wondering what kind of book is that? that I got in so much trouble, and he does not really know much. So eventually he managed to go out, and he goes to Cyprus to work, and when he goes to Cyprus, he goes to a bookstore, and the first thing he buys is a Bible, because he lives with this question, what kind of book is that? I, you know, it has gotten me so much trouble, I need to find out. So he gets a Bible, he starts reading the Bible, and the Lord worked in his heart, and he came to faith, and now he's pastoring the Iranian church. Now, I ask you, how exactly can you plan all of that? Okay, 
what, what can be your strategy in order to plant an Iranian church in Athens? But you see, in the ordinary circumstances of life, God is at work. And what we need is to have this gospel intentionality, to see the opportunities and always be available. So that is the first component of a missional attitude. But there is more. The second thing that I want you to note in this narrative is that to have a missional attitude means to learn again the art of being properly upset. Yes, you read right and you heard right. Uh, is to learn again the art of being properly upset. And I say to learn again because especially us in the West, we are trained to be tolerant. You know, everything around in our culture is training us to really be tolerant. And here we see that the key element in what happened in Paul so that Paul can, in order for Paul to do what he did is that he felt, as we read, provoked in his spirit. That's what we read. Paul was really upset. But there is a very particular word here that I want you to underline. So Paul was not generally, that's why I say properly upset. He was not generally angry and upset. There is a word which um, actually you have a form of it in your language. It's the word paroxysm. Uh, if you haven't heard this word, that's a good thing because it's a medical term when there is, you know, an emergency. Um, so it, it means, uh, as, as you can see, uh, a sudden outburst of emotion or action, okay? So this is a very intense word, and this is exactly what we find in uh, the narrative in the book of Acts. That's exactly how Paul has felt. Now, it's very important to keep in mind that this is uh, not a, uh, uh, is not a word that Luke uses here by chance. So it's a rare Greek word that we don't find it often in the New Testament. But it's a word that is being used very often in the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in the so-called Septuagint. And it's a word that has been used many times in the Old Testament to describe God's reaction, God's anger against, guess what, the idolatry. So what Paul sees in front of him, idolatry. And he feels what? A paroxysm. What God feels and what is God's reaction when God encounters idolatry? A paroxysm. Now, I, we don't have the time to go through all the scripture passages, but I'll just give you one. Isaiah uh, chapter 65, verses 2 and 3, we read, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their devices. People who provoke me, the exact same word like in the book of Acts, to my face continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. So, Paul's anger is theologically loaded. It's not that he's simply upset at people, but he is really in tune with God's heart, and he feels exactly the same way that God feels when he encounters idolatry. And he has what an author calls a biblical nerve in order to become missional. In other words, in order to really care, to react, in order to really care 
to confront, in order to really care, to be involved, in order to really care, to really share the gospel, we need to have this biblical nerve, which means, as an author puts it, here we're not talking about irritability, but about a serious, settled, deep-seated commitment which understands the real sinister nature of all that which sets itself up as a rival to God, however it might look to the contrary on the surface. So my question is, as we look across our communities and our cities and nations, do we have that passion for God's glory? Are we passionate enough for God's glory in order to be irritated when we see that this glory is being downtrodden? Do we have that passion for God's honor so when we see people diminuing God to really be theologically upset? Are we grieved that idolatry trembles all over it? Or have we become desensitized? Would there be a renewed urgency to our mission if we shared Paul's attitude? So, so far we have seen that a missional attitude is one that lives the ordinary life with gospel intentionality, is being properly upset with the idolatry. But here is the thing. If the only thing we do seeing the idolatry which exists around us is anger, so we're not missional, we will be confrontational. So there is another aspect to this. So the third point is that in order to have a missional attitude, we need to learn to identify the manifestations of grace all around us. In other words, if when you see the idolatry, the only thing you see is darkness, that is not enough. You also need to see longings. And I'll explain what I mean by that. You also need to see God working or people hungering after having a hunger for God. Now, uh, what we see that Paul is doing here is he is able to look through and beyond the idolatry of his people. He, we, we, we see that, Paul is, uh, that Luke is using this verb to describe what Paul did, that you get the word theory. So he was not simply seeing the idolatry, but he was reflecting and analyzing. And there was, he was able to see beyond what his eyes would uh, encounter. And why we say that? Paul talks about this altar to the unknown God. And of course, from the Greek literature, we have documentation that there were those kinds of altars. Of course, it's interesting that it's always in the plural, altars to the unknown gods, okay? So there is uh, a lot of discussion as to, you know, why they had those kinds of altars. I mean, the most popular explanation is, it, is, is that it, it was because of fear, okay? So many times we don't know to what God, God we should pray, uh, or we don't know who, who should appease, so let's have an altar to the unknown gods just to play it safe. Okay, so that is the popular explanation, and that is true. But we can also suggest that there may be another explanation. And another explanation is that this altar signifies and expresses their longing for something more, for something different. They may have 
all sorts of idols. Actually, the word that is being used is that the city was flooded with idols. We may have all these gods, we may have all these idols, but deep down we know that this is not enough. There must be something more, perhaps something else, which is unknown, unknown gods. And Paul comes and he says, yes, you are right. But let me give you an example, an illustration of that. Let me change the slide here. There is a Greek play, like the Greek tragedies. Next to the Aeropagus, there are two theaters, ancient theaters, and Greeks, they loved to have these classical plays, you know, the, the classical tragedy. So we have Aeschylus, and um, uh, Eumenides is one of these plays, and there is a scene there that takes place in the very same place in the Aeropagus, in the Mars Hill, okay? So here is the story. It's a scary story. So Orestes uh, is guilty uh, because he has killed his mother, Clytemnistra. Sorry for the Greek, but this is the original, so I'm not going to kill the names <laughs> to say them, you know, the way they are in English, because I cannot say them, it's, it's too complicated for me. So Orestes has killed his mother, Clytemnistra. Why? Because she has killed her husband, Orestes' father, Agamemnon. Talking about family problems, okay? Uh, so, uh, he's tried where in the Aeropagus, in the same place in Mars Hill, by Athena, the goddess of the city. And Apollo, the other god, comes to his defense. And Apollo says this to the defense of Oresis. He says, okay, uh, in order to, to show the magnitude of the crime of Clytemistra, his mother, killing uh, his father, her uh, husband, he says, Apollo says that, okay, Zeus, the high god of the pantheon, can do many things. He's very capable. He has many tricks. He can do many things. He can change almost every situation. There is only one thing that Zeus cannot do. If a man dies and his blood dries on the ground, there is no raising up. There is no resurrection. That is the only thing that Zeus cannot do. And Paul comes in the exact very place and he says, what if, what if there was a God who can really raise dead people? What if there is a God who can really bring resurrection? And Paul comes and says, yes, this is the unknown God and this God exists, and I'm here to tell you about him. You see how Paul confronts and connects with his culture? So when he sees the idols, at the same time he sees darkness and brokenness, many reasons why he should be upset, and at the same thing he sees longing, questions, quests, and he feels compassion. The two of them together bring this subversive fulfillment, which is part of what it means to become missional, to have this missional attitude. If you only think sinfulness and darkness, you will simply be an angry Christian, and there are many angry Christians these days. But this does not make you missional, it makes you confrontational. What we're talking about here is how can you can really engage, so you also need to see the longings, the thirsts, 
the question for this unknown God and say, yes, you are right. You are right to expect that there must be something else. And here I am to tell you and to show you. There is, however, a final thing that we need to keep in mind. In order to have a missional attitude, we need to see God in the ordinary circumstances of life. In other words, to see God's calling where we are already, but at the same time, we also see, need to see God's calling us to enter into new territories, to get out of our comfort zone and enter into our new territories. You see the balance? So it's important to see God working where we are in the ordinary circumstances of our life, but at the same time, we need to move out of that and see opportunities in new territories, get out of our comfort zone, why we say that. Okay, so Paul, we read that um, he starts reasoning in the synagogue. So that's something that, uh, excuse me, that we expect. That's what Paul does. That is what Paul has been doing all along. But also here, we read something very interesting. He adds, and in the marketplace. Now, what is the significance of that? Paul was in Troas, Acts 16. We talked about that on Friday. And God is pushing him out of his comfort zone to enter into a new territory. So far, up to that point, Paul was in a primarily Jewish context in Asia. Now Paul will move out of that context into a new territory to enter into a Gentile uh, world, okay, in Greece. Now, interestingly enough, even though Paul made that step and he came to Greece, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and in Berea, he only ministered in the context of synagogues. If you think and if you read the narratives in Philippi, in, in all those places, he ministered primarily in the context of synagogues. Now, synagogues are not comfortable in that sense. I mean, Paul had a lot of trouble and persecution there, so it's not a safe place. But at the same time, it's a convenient place. It's a place that, is, uh, that, that Paul knows very well. He knows what to expect, at least, there. This is the first time that Paul makes yet another step, going to the marketplace. Now, when we read here marketplace, it doesn't mean a shopping mall. It means the agora, which is the open space, the open public space at the heart of the city, like in Athens, in, in most Greek cities and in most uh, early Roman cities, there is this open place, the agora, where you have, of course, the commerce, you have the civic activities, uh, you have the uh, education, you have the world of ideas, you have the art, you have religion, you have everything. This is the place where you enter and you don't really know what to expect. It's interesting that in the synagogue, Paul knows who, who to meet and what to expect. But in those places, in the Agora, we read that he will meet those who just happen to be there, the Epicureans, the Stoics. It's a different world and it's a scary world. But in order to be missional, we need to really enter into these new territories, many times without really knowing what to expect and what is there. And God is really pushing us out of this zone of comfort in order to enter into these places where we will actually fulfill his mission. And I don't know what that may be in your case, 
for us in Athens, in my church, being an old, not as old as your church, I was making the joke earlier that you're older than we are. Greeks are very proud about starting everything, but uh, you know, you beat us here. Uh, our church was founded 1858. Yours started way much earlier. So we're very old, very traditional, way much more traditional than you. I was referring to the other, in the other service that you raise your hands. We don't. We're good Presbyterians. Uh, and we have a pipe organ and, uh, and all the works. Very traditional church. And we knew you know, how to do things well in the context of the church. And being a small minority, 0.2, in, in a context where we feel threatened and everything seems to be hostile, you build the fortress and you just feel safe within the four walls of your church and everything is fine there. But the Lord, in His grace, He wanted to really help us get out of our comfort zone. So, in 2008, uh, it was the time when we started talking about planting churches, that we need to plant churches in the city, and we started identifying a particular area where is the anarchist capital of the city. And if you remember when Greece went bankrupt 2009, right before that, you know, you had many riots and demonstrations and violence, and all of that started from that particular area. So we said, okay, this is the sensitive nerve of the city. This is where we need to go and plant the church. But it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to actually go and do it. We're really scared, and we didn't know how to do it, and we didn't know who is going to do it. Nobody was living in that area. Nobody wanted to go and live in that, in that area. How are we going to plant the church? So as good Presbyterians, we had a committee. We were thinking about that, praying some, uh, but primarily talking about that. And God, in his grace and providence, allowed something to happen. So 2008... A policeman shot and killed a 15-year-old teenager in that very area where we wanted to go and plant in Exarchia. And when the news came out, the city was in chaos. There were riots, demonstrations, young people, uh, teenagers going out in the streets for days, two, three days, burning everything down, breaking, destroying. And somebody gives me a call and he says, we're on the news. I said, what do you mean? The church is on the news. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, the anarchists are really, a group of anarchists are really in front of our church and they're fighting with the police. And you know, the, the, the TV was following the action. And so I dropped my car, I ran into the church. By the time I arrived, the, the, action, the action moved forward. So I entered into the sanctuary and we have windows, like big windows like yours, looking a busy street and the anarchists and the police, they were fighting right in front of our church. And as I entered in, all the windows were broken. And in the church, it was full of glass, marbles, tear gas. And you know what? I felt that that was God's way to say to us, enough. There is no secure place that you need to see outside these four walls to get out of your comfort zone and get into this unknown territory. Well, uh, I made a lot of jokes about being Presbyterian, but here is the thing. Uh, that happened three times. It takes time for us to really get it. <laughs> so three times during demonstrations, they broke the windows of the church. Third time, I asked the board of the elders permission not to fix them. So we had a, a Sunday morning service with all the windows broken. 
And I asked the congregation to turn and see and says, you know, guys, I'm not sure, but my hunch is that that will keep happening until we get it. That we need to get out of our comfort zone and enter into this unknown territory. And there, there are blessings. Now, final question. Now, I don't have excuse. I went overboard in the previous service. They didn't tell me what time to end, but this time they told me, and I'm already late. But this is the final point, the, final, the most important. The final. Why should we do that? So this is not moralism. I'm not saying to you, guys, be good guys. Go out and be missional and try hard. Why we should do that? Here is the answer. The answer basically is the gospel. But here is why we say that. I remind you the way that Paul summarized what he did. He says, as everything happened as I was passing by. Now, this word, this verb, it's a very interesting, a very important verb. Don't try to read it. There are 21 cases in the book of Acts that this verb is being used to describe what the apostles, what Paul, Peter, and the rest, they were doing. It seems that everything happened as they were going by, as they were walking by. Almost a technical term to describe what it means to be missional. Now, why is this important? Because when Peter tries to summarize Jesus Christ's ministry and work for us, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, with the Holy Spirit and with power, and Jesus, he went about doing good. Guess what? We have the exact same participle, the exact same verb, than the, like the one that is being used in the case of Paul and of the other apostles. In other words, what we are, go, what we are doing is what Jesus Christ has already done for us. And actually being missional is nothing more than entering in response and in gratitude into what Jesus Christ has already started doing for our own sake. So it's the gospel, the motivation to be missional. Amen.